Well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn in God's Word to Haggai. Haggai is a small book of the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, toward the end of the Old Testament. If you find um, some books of the Bible that start with the letter Z, it's right in the middle between those, and don't be ashamed to use your table of contents to get there. Um, This is a prophecy that we've been walking through for the last few weeks, and today we come to the last couple of verses um, in Haggai chapter 2. So as you turn there, um, I want to share a couple of things I'm really excited about. One is that we've got breakfast in Bethlehem, which is our intentional celebration of Christmas for families, um, but also also an outreach kind of opportunity where I hope that you will make plans to attend with either grandchildren or children that are younger um, to be able to bring them, but invite neighbors too. Um, If you have other kids, you know, friends at school, things like that, this is a great opportunity to be able to introduce them to the ministry of the church, but also for them to get kind of some orientation as they head into this really busy month um, of, of Christmas and all those kind of things to be able to do that. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, what happened in Bethlehem, the birth of children, we've got two of our staff members that are expecting babies. So Nate and Megan are expecting their first child. And then Noah and Brittany are expecting their second um, here in just the next couple of weeks. And so if you don't see them for a minute, um, it's because they've had a baby. So be in prayer for them. Um, those due dates are right here in the next couple of weeks. And we're so excited for you guys um, as you welcome um, new additions into your families. Uh, Well, this morning as we turn in God's Word to Haggai, it's important, I think, for me to kind of catch you up to speed. Um, This may be your first Sunday with us. And so what are we even talking about? And and who is Haggai? And and why why do we care what he said a long time ago? Well, one of the realities is that this is God's Word. And part of our understanding of God's Word comes from God's Word, that it's living and active. In other words, this isn't just a history book about things that happened a long time ago, but that God, on his own, his own decision, has decided this is how he desires to speak to us. And you say, so just like just opening the Bible and reading it, um, God begins to speak in a very, very significant way, yes. But then there's also this reality that sometimes we may open up a Bible and we don't sense that God is speaking to us in a specific way. And the reality is that we are dependent on God's Holy Spirit to basically open our eyes to what God is saying in his word. And so every time we come together and we open up God's word, we are immediately in a dependent position of saying, God, unless you open my eyes, God, unless you speak in this moment, I won't see it and I won't hear it. But God is a gracious God. And can I just tell you today, if you're here and and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God does want to speak to you. He does want to lead you into right paths for his namesake. And that's part of his heart. He's made that clear in his word. And so what we can do now in light of that reality, how his word communicates to us through all generations, is we can turn back to an ancient document like this and begin to step into a historic understanding of what God was saying then, and then to see how then ultimately it finds some fulfillment in what God has done in Jesus Christ. And now what does that mean for us today as we await the second coming of Jesus Christ? And so we're stepping in, in the full continuum of history, we're going way back, and then we're gonna move up a little bit all the way into today. And so that's what we're going to do today. So where are we in Haggai? We're at the very end in verses 20 down through 23. So to catch you up to speed, God has been dealing with his people who have gone through the worst of experiences. They have been overtaken by another country and have gone into exile, into Assyria. And now they have returned 
to their land, but they're no longer in control. They're no longer a sovereign nation. They're under the, the rule and reign of the Persians. And so while they're back home, they're not in charge. Um, they don't have their own military. They don't have their own national identity in that regard. Although they're back in their, in their own land, it's very, very different than it was. And so now the people of God are being confronted by God, who is a loving God, about things that they are neglecting. And, and the book of Haggai is specifically about they've neglected God's presence, um, that the temple was a very significant part of what it meant for, for them to be God's people was that God was with them, that they were literally in the presence of God with his presence being in the temple. And so the temple, and when Assyria come in, had been destroyed. The, the temple that Solomon had built had been destroyed. And so now they're being called by God to rebuild the temple. But because of complications and really some intimidation and other things, and then really when it comes down to it, because of preoccupation with their own stuff, of their own houses, uh, that, that after a while it became no longer about the intimidation and the difficulty of rebuilding the temple. It became because they really wanted to just start to make life work again, that God begins to confront them. And in chapter one, he says, you know, my people, um, just like in the dashboard of a car, I've given you all of these indicator lights that are going off, the yellow ones and the red ones that are supposed to be getting your attention. And what are some of those indicator lights? Well, part of what he says back in chapter one is, you know, just look at, at how you've planted. Verse six, you planted much, but you harvested little. Uh, you eat, but you're never satisfied. Uh, you drink, but, but never enough to be happy. Uh, you put on clothes, but never enough to get warm. The, the wage earner puts his wages into a bag with holes in it. Um, he's saying, I've given you these indicator lights that like there's just, there's something not right. You, you sense it. You, you know that something's not right. Um, you're not satisfied. You're, you, you don't have enough to, food. You, you know, even though you drink, you're not very merry. Um, all these things, I, I'm giving you indicator lights. But then he moves into some of the red indicator lights, like when the, the, uh, the, the, the engine light comes on. It's like, pull over now. He says, so on account of you, verse 10, the skies have withheld dew and the land its crops. I've summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields on man and animal and all that your hands produce. What's he saying? I'm cutting off the food supply. God himself to his own people is doing this. And that's important for us to know is that God takes so seriously our orientation and our focus on him that he is willing to allow us to go through difficulty in order to get our attention back. That's important for us to know. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that, all difficulty is, is not of the Lord. That, that any hardship I could go through, that any, any hard time, that, that that's just not of God. God only wants me to be happy. God only wants me to have plenty. God, God only wants me to, to be healthy. Um, and sometimes God allows things like this to be the wake-up moment for us in order to increase independence on him. Um, and that's important, and that's a, a principle that we see here in this passage, but then also extends into the New Testament as well for us as God's people. Um, and that's, a, that's good for us to know in a culture where many times we are told that if you're going through any difficulty, that's not part of God's plan. Sometimes difficulty and trials are part of God's plan, not in a temptation sense of God tempting you toward a faithlessness, 
but of a, tr- of a testing of your souls. And so then as we move into chapter two, what we see is then encouragement and promise that even though as they begin to work and some of the people look at it and they say, man, this temple is nothing like the old one. Uh, the old one was so much better. It was bigger. It was more beautiful. All of these things. God begins to speak some promises about the, for, the, the, the glory of this coming temple being even greater than the former. Um, and, and they're just like, I can't wrap my head around this. I, I can't understand this. And what we know is that ultimately that becomes fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Jesus himself comes and tabernacles or temples among us, that, that, that the, the glory of what's coming is going to be far greater than that which was in the past. And then ultimately we understand ourselves as the church. And listen, I'm going from thousands of years of history, going back and forth in this moment, even with these sentences, is for then us to understand that you and I are called bricks. Literally, we're, we're, we are bricks being put together in which God resides by his Holy Spirit. So not the bricks of this building. This building's wonderful, but this building will one day not exist. Uh, buildings crumble, buildings fall, buildings get renovated and all these things. But, but the church, the people of God, that's what God is speaking to in the New Testament. You are being put together like, like bricks of a temple where God resides by his Holy Spirit. And, and so we're speaking, so when we read these words, we know that ultimately he's talking about a glory that will reach its full reality in the day of Christ, when there's a new heaven and a new earth. And so we're tasting of it now and the goodness of it, but there awaits this ultimate fulfillment. And then as we lead into chapter two, we see that he begins to confront them a little bit more and he, he calls them to think carefully about their ways, to be able to consider holiness and, and what they're doing, all of these things God's confronting them. But then we move into the very end of chapter two and what we find ourselves is this passage really that's getting them ready for Christmas. It's really getting them ready for Christmas. When I came in today, um, little Teddy back over here, Teddy Bush, I said, good morning, Teddy. And he said, Merry Christmas. (laughs) He knows Thanksgiving is over and Christmas is finally here. Uh, It's coming. But listen, uh, how many of kids in the room, kids, can I have your attention for just a second? How many of you are excited about Christmas? Anybody? Yeah? I bet you are. And uh, look at the kids over here too. They're like, yeah, I'm excited about it. You know, how many of you have already been thinking about what you want for Christmas? Like you've been thinking about the gifts and you maybe have even communicated that to mom or dad. Yeah, we got some hands going up. Everybody's anticipating Christmas. Now, let me ask you kids, isn't Christmas Eve like almost excruciating? Like it's like painful because you just can't wait for Christmas Day to finally be here to get to open it. How many of you, let's just go ahead and be honest, we're getting to know each other in this room. How many of you on, on the 24th, you open at least one present? Anybody? Anybody here? I see some hands. It's like, I, I mean, yeah, kind of. Whatever. It's almost like we just can't wait. I mean, like, it's like, I just can't wait until tomorrow. I've got to get a gift opened at least tonight, you know, on Christmas Eve. And, and what is all that about? It's all about anticipation. It's all about this, you know, it's coming. And, and you know, it's coming. Why? Because you've got a Christmas tree in the living room. Why do you know it's coming? Because there's gifts wrapped. You don't know what they are, but but you can see there's obviously presents under the tree. You know it's coming. It's coming and it's even got some of those gifts, your name on it. 
You can go and look and be like, this one's mine. And you pick it up and shake it and be like, I, I think it's what I asked for. You know, I'm not sure. And so you do all these things and you're trying and trying to wait. But the, the anxiety of it, the, 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 the anticipation is just like, oh, I just can't wait for Christmas Day to finally get here. Can I tell you that this passage is kind of like the month of December. In fact, it's written. It was given during the month of December, uniquely. In the, in, the, in the calendar of, 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 of what happened and what it was doing for the people of God was getting them ready for the coming of Christ, Christmas. It was getting them ready for the coming of Christ in a way that they desperately needed and in a way that one specific leader, Zerubbabel, who we're gonna read about, he desperately needed. But can I tell you, there's a reason we still do Christmas because you and I, we are still those who are living in the month of December waiting for the 25th. Can I just tell you that? Don't forget, you are a waiting people. You are waiting for the coming of Christ again. You, you are longing for it like a child longs to open the present on the 25th. Don't think that you've already had Christmas. It's, it's already done. No, we are still those who remember the former Christmas that was, but we long for the Christmas to come. So we live in this tension, brothers and sisters. And the people of God way back in Haggai's day lived in the tension and they needed the reminder of the coming of Christ just like you and I need the reminder today of the coming of Christ. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Haggai. The reason we stand, we've just acknowledged, this isn't Chad's thoughts about God. This is God speaking to us today from his word. And so hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 20 from Haggai chapter two. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant, this is the Lord's declaration and make you like my signet ring for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. We pray with me. God, I pray that today through the, what in some ways is an obscure passage, God, that you would ready us all the more for the true coming of Christmas, for Christ to come again. So that even during this month in 2023, that we would be rightly oriented and we would allow Christmas to have its full effect, for Advent to have its full effect on us, to ready us all the more so that we rightly anticipate the coming of our Savior and King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. In these few verses here at the end, I want us to keep our eyes on just a few things as we think about Christmas and the coming of Christmas and the coming ultimately of Jesus Christ again, which is your hope. Can I just remind you of that? That is the hope that God has given you. I've talked about this before, but so many times we have made our hope that we die and then go to heaven. But that's not the way that the New Testament speaks of a biblical hope. Our hope isn't death, our hope is resurrection. And that's a big difference. 
Um, one can lead to a fatalism of just wanting to get this thing called life over with. The other is a longing for a day when Jesus Christ will return and the dead in Christ will rise. Just like Jesus was resurrected on the third day, that was to demonstrate what will be the ultimate reality for all of those who have died in Christ, is that they will be raised with him and will be with him forever. Now, I realize that may sound like bizarre. Some of you may be thinking, I I thought that I was just looking forward to getting to heaven. Heaven will certainly be a wonderful place, but the reality is you're waiting for heaven to come to earth, the new heavens and the new earth. You're, You're waiting for a day when we'll no longer even need the sun because God will be our light and will be our warmth. All of these realities that Revelations chapter 21 and 22, I invite you to go there today, maybe this afternoon, turning your Bible to Revelation 21 and 22 and just spend time looking at what will one day be uh, and, and to see the full picture and the scope of God's plan for all of his creation. But today in this passage that extends back over 2,000 years, what I want us to keep our eyes on is first of all this, God. The whole book of Haggai has been about fixing people's perspective and their focus back on God. So we would be missing the point if we turn to this passage and we don't really pay attention to God. And what we look at and when we see this, what we see in this passage is that God says, I will act. Seven times in just these few verses, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will make, I will do. God says it over and over and over again in order to impact us, to impact the original audience and to impact us that God is saying, I'm going to do some things. I'm going to act. Now listen, think about the improbability of this. What he says he's going to do, look at it. He says, I am going in verse 21 to shake the heavens and the earth. Can Zerubbabel shake the heavens and the earth? No, God can I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. Well, certainly fresh in Zerubbabel's mind would have been Assyria and their recent exile and other return back to their own land and, and thinking about that Gentile kingdom. They've already seen the Babylonians be overtaken by the Assyrians, so they know that this can happen. But remember, Israel at this moment doesn't have their own army. They don't have their own military might. So, so how, are, how are they going to do this? Well, the answer is they won't. God says, I will. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. Then look, I will overturn chariots and their riders. What he's doing all of a sudden in a moment with language that he's using, even as he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth, is he's sending his people back into his word. Can I just tell you, that's what God wants to do in your life again and again and again. That's why it's so important for you to be a Bible reader. Here at First Baptist, what we call it is, is we say we must be scripture fed because biblical authority is a foundational value for who we are as the people of God. And so we wanna be Bible readers. The number one predictor of whether you'll be a growing Christian or not is if you read the Bible four or more days a week. Four or more days a week is the number one indicator of whether you'll be a growing Christian or not. But can I tell you why that is? Because as you begin to be exposed over and over and over again to God's word, that all of a sudden, like the people in Haggai's day, whose minds, as they heard about shaking the heavens and the earth, their mind with that same word would have gone to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God shook the heavens and the earth and rained down fire on a city that was godless and had rejected God and who experienced his wrath. 
When he talks about this idea of I will overturn chariots and their riders, their mind would have gone back to the story of Exodus. When passing through the Red Sea, the Egyptians chasing after them, the walls of water came crashing down in a moment. God defeated his enemy. Their minds would have gone back again and again and again to horses and their riders were fall each by his brother's sword. That would have taken them back to multiple stories where God caused such a panic to arise, maybe in an enemy camp that they got up and in their complete confusion, they just start stabbing each other. All because God has caused them to hear a noise. God has caused them to fight one another. God is reminding them of his track record of faithfulness through his word. Their minds going back to what has been written in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, remembering and building their life on his faithfulness and that God, he will act. And then God says, on that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant and make you like my signet ring. A signet ring was a ring that would have had kind of a royal crest, you know, um, built into it so that then when a, a king was wanting to, to put his mark of, of, of authority on a document, would drip some wax and then put his finger literally in that wax so that it had his signet ring mark on it. So you know, this is the king's ring. This, this is his authority. This is the king speaking these words. And he's saying, Zerubbabel, I'm gonna make you like my signet ring. My authority is going to be expressed through you. All of these things in the most unlikely of times. God's saying, I'm going to do all of these powerful things of overthrowing nations and of upturning kingdoms and of, and of setting riders, you know, like the strength of the Egyptians, you know, like I'm going to destroy it, all these things. And it's like, they don't even have an army. What can they do? How is it possible? And what I want your mind to go to is that moment in the garden when Jesus has been praying and he said, God, not my will, but yours be done. This moment of complete surrender of the son that is now about to take him straight to the cross. And then a mob comes in, a little army. They come in with, with swords and, and clubs and they've got it. They're, they're ready for a fight. And what does one of the disciples do? Peter takes out a sword and he takes a swing and he whacks off an ear. I mean, Talk about a bad shot. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, guys, get your swords. Get your swords. Guys, I need your help. No. He says, put away your sword. Put away your sword. And then what does he do to, the, to his enemy? He bends down and picks up the ear and heals the man. This man who's come to arrest him, to, to lead him to a trial that will lead to his unjust Condemnation and crucifixion on a cross. He's sitting there loving his enemy. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I have to do this alone. I have to accomplish this for you. I will act. Brothers and sisters, that's ultimately the picture that we arrive at is a picture where God is acting on our behalf and God is acting in such a way that only he receives the glory. You see, it's God who gave the gift of his son. 
It's God who was then at work among us, living among us and healing among us and setting free among us and casting out demons among us and raising the dead among us in Jesus Christ. And then it was God who acted by giving his one and only son to die on a cross for our sins. God acting. God declaring here, I will act. And then him fulfilling that commitment that he will act through Jesus. And then what do we see after Jesus is raised from the grave? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth. Does that sound reminiscent? I will shake the heavens and the earth. And what does Jesus do with all of that authority? Does he say, go and kill everyone? So there's just us Jews who are left. No. What does he say? Go and make disciples of all nations. That's how his kingdom is going to advance is through this message of what God has done for all nations. And brothers and sisters, we now are part of that army of people who do not pick up swords in order to go and to kill our enemy, but we have been called to love our enemy and to bless those who persecute us and to bring them the good news of the gospel that will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. This is good news and it reorients us. And it was reorienting the people of God then in their defenseless state, in their their state of not having an army to, to, to have to believe that God will act, that God will act. Brothers and sisters, we still have to believe that. We still have a choice to make. Are we going to trust in horses and chariots or in tanks and in drones? Or are we going to trust in the Lord our God? The question remains the same for us today. Where are we trusting for action to come from? From the Lord? Because God is still mighty to save and it is his desire to save in every nation those who have been set apart by his grace. Number two, we see that God will defeat. God will defeat. God will defeat his enemies. This is one of the realities of the Old Testament that we see again and again and again is that people groups have become sinful against the Lord and God punishes sin. You need to put that down. You need to really let that sink in that God punishes sin. He has established that throughout the Old Testament that when people have done sinful things and and, and it's reached the heavens, in other words, it's filled up a bowl of full measure that God then punishes it. He's, he's reminding them of ways that he has punished sinfulness. He, he punished Sodom and Gomorrah. He defeated them. He, he punished the Egyptians. He drowned them. And he punished those that were in the promised land, not because he just was ethnocentric in some you know, unhealthy way, but because the full measure of sin had reached up to the heavens among these people. And so they went in and he executed justice through his people on them. It's important for us to know that God will punish sin. And you wanna know how we know that? Most clearly is because he poured out his wrath on sin in his son. This brings us squarely back to Jesus once again, that Jesus, if he was going to save us, was going to have to take on the penalty for our sin, which is death. The consequences of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when Jesus hung on the cross in that moment, God demonstrated that he is a God who punishes sin by allowing his son to die. 
But can I tell you, it's in that very same moment of his justice that we also meet his mercy because Jesus was taking on the sins of you and me and of the whole world, as the scriptures say. That's important for us to understand is that these expressions of God to punish sin are real. It's not that God was a God who punishes sin in the Old Testament, but now he just turns a blind eye to it, that he's just a loving God who never deals with sin. No, he is a just God forever. And he is a merciful God forever. His justice will be poured out ultimately on sin in the day of the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 23. It says, and I will take you Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration and make you like a signet ring for I have chosen you. I'm sorry, I missed it. On that day, verse 23, on that day. Well, what is that day? What's he talking about? Well, what we know ultimately from the scriptures is that it is still a day that we await. It's still a day that we await. But God has shown his justice and his mercy by giving Christ. And then instead of in that moment, I mean, think about it. When Jesus was raised from the grave on the third day, that could have been the day of the Lord. And that'd be it. God would have been justified and, 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 and he would have had mercy on whom, whom he had had mercy. But in his love, in his patience, in his mercy, he continues to wait to wait that more and more and more might be saved. So it's important for you, and under, for you and I to get a right orientation that right now, this understanding that people apart from God are under his wrath until they find forgiveness of sins that only comes by how what God has done for them in Jesus is available. So, but, but how can they believe this good news of the gospel if they never hear it? So it should keep causing us to ask questions. Well, well, then how are they going to hear it if no one goes and tells them? And so how's anybody going to go and tell them if no one is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Brothers and sisters, I'm quoting from Romans chapter 10. That's to be the orientation of our life, that we are to look at nations like in Central Asia, to look at, at men, women, boys, and girls in countries like Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and places like that, and not to look at them with a hatred in our heart, but to look at them knowing that they are under God's wrath until the gospel changes them and they experience the forgiveness of God and then are restored to right relationship with him, as will be the case of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7. So what should be the orientation and the action of our life is to go just like Jonah to Nineveh and proclaim and proclaim that you are under God's wrath in hopes that just like the Ninevites in Jonah's day, that they will repent and turn to God and he will relent from the disaster that they rightly deserve and that they will experience forgiveness and grace just like you and I have. He said, that's one of the real tests of those who have received grace is that they are grace givers. The real test of those who've been changed by the power of the gospel is do they tell the gospel? Brothers and sisters, that's an indictment, right? For each one of us. That's a wake up call that, man, I never tell anyone the gospel. Then have you really received it? Have you really received this good news of the gospel? If you're not willing to tell another soul, it's just kind of is asking the question, have you really been changed by this good news of the gospel? 
that was free, it was because of what God did for you, then why wouldn't you tell it to someone else? His word again and again confronting us and challenging us and calling us to live our lives in boldness because God will defeat his enemies, but it is his desire to to save them by the cross of Jesus Christ. But then finally, what we see is this. Not only will God act, not only will he defeat his enemies, but God will reign. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration and make you like my signet ring for I have chosen you. Now it's important right here, this is significant like in the Hebrew, is that God shifts from addressing him the way that he does back up in verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. But notice in verse 23 what he says, I will take you Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant. Well, why the shift? Why not just keep calling him the, the governor of Judah? Well, all of a sudden he's establishing a family line here. And what he's doing, even with the address of my servant, is hearkening back to a language that was spoken very clearly of a servant of the Lord named David, King David, and of promises made to King David about his family line that would be given a throne that would last forever and ever and ever. Promises made by God to David and his line And we look and you say, well, it doesn't say son of David. It says son of Shiltiel. Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Let's turn over to Matthew chapter one and look at a little line of, of names because this is where we begin to see the dots connecting and the arrows pointing straight to a man named Jesus. Beginning in verse one of Matthew, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Did you catch that? The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered King David. Did you see that quick progression? That just took you through a majority of the, of the Old Testament books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, so you just, you walk through a bunch there, including books of, 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 of Ruth that then take you all the way up to First and Second Samuel. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. And so we see that God is a gracious God. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Remember what I just told you a second ago about the Babylonian and the Assyrian exile? They've gone away. What you just did is you walked through a huge scope of biblical history of these names. And if you remember some of your biblical history, you recognize that a lot of these names were not such good kings. A lot of these guys, they get the description, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
There's very few in this list that did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but God is gracious and faithful to his promise. But we meet this moment here in verse 11 of the time of the exile to Babylon, but then turn the page and look at verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shiltiel. Remember that name? Shiltiel? And Shiltiel fathered Zerubbabel. All of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, okay. So we just playing a name game. Like where do we find multiple names? Where are we? We're in the New Testament. Where are we? We're at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew. Where are we? We are in the birth story of Jesus. So Rubabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Elikim, Elikim fathered Azer, Azer fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Akam, Akam fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eliezer, Eliezer fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. What's the significance here? Like Bucky's road signs that tell you the next Bucky's is 563 miles. God is putting up signs all along the way in his word saying, He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And God is getting his people ready because Zerubbabel would have a son, but that son would not be Jesus. No, he would have a son named Abiud. And then Abiud would have a son, and it seemed like God was long in coming. God was long in fulfilling his promise, but at the exact right time, as the writer of Hebrews makes so clear at the beginning, in fulfillment of all that was written, the fulfillment of every sign, he was born. And as we head into the month of December, we will celebrate his coming. The reality, brothers and sisters, is that the day spoken of here in Haggai is a day that we still long for. But my question for you and me is, do our lives show that we are longing for that day? Or do we live our lives as though Christmas has already come? You see, the reality is that the day after Christmas is one of those days, right? Where the toys, kids, you ever experienced this? It wasn't, it's not as fun on the 26th as it is on the 25th that we begin to kind of lose some attention and we begin to want something more. We begin to think about, I've even had this experience with my own kids of the day after Christmas of letting me know what they want next year. Anybody else in the room? I want this next year. And it's like, you just got this. There's a discontentment in us, brothers and sisters, that is holy and right because we still long for the day of Christ. We're still waiting for Christmas. So how then should we live? We should live in light of his word here in Haggai. We should live as though God will act one day, but we should also be the ones who live today in light of the reality that he has acted, that God is the one who saved us. Where's your confidence? 
Is the testimony of your life what he has done or what you have done? Part of how we live ready for the coming of Christ Jesus is by living a life that proclaims what he has done, that God has acted and he will act again. We should live with the acknowledgement that God will defeat his enemy. So I don't have to hate my enemy, but instead I can love them and share the gospel with them and bless them when persecuted. I can love those that most people, maybe even in our own culture here in the United States, would say, we hate them, we don't need them. No, for you and I, we have now a new ethic that we live by. We are called to bless and not to harm, to love, to serve, to give our lives in faithfulness to him, knowing that he will be ultimately victorious over all and that he will reign. Brothers and sisters, right now, if you are a Christian, what you are saying is essentially from a position on your knees like this, you're saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Maybe you're here today and you've never come to that place where you realize that what God was after was simply for you to come to him and to give your life fully to him. That it wasn't about church attendance or giving money to something or any of those sort of things. That God wants your heart. And he wants you to understand the goodness of being in his kingdom and of having his rule and reign over your life. My, My hope for each one of you is that you will know the goodness of Jesus Christ. You will know the freedom of life in him You wanna know the the way that he transforms your heart and mind so that you rightly relate to him and then are free to rightly relate with, with all people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I imagine that there's probably a part of your life right now where if somebody looked at it, they would say, it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. That there's a way that you speak about others that doesn't look like the way that Jesus would speak about someone. There's a part of your life where it looks like you make all the decisions rather than making decisions in light of what Jesus has said about that subject. There's areas of our life where his rule and reign needs to advance. And that happens through you humbly surrendering again and saying, Jesus, you are Lord of my finances. You are are Lord of my parenting. Jesus, you you are Lord of the anxiety that I feel about world events right now. You are Lord, you reign. And so you may need to come and spend some time just kneeling at these steps today, just praying and surrendering again. You may need to spend time today confessing sin, that you've had attitudes in your heart against a people group or a nation or something like that. It isn't godly, it's not loving. Instead, praying that God would give you boldness to be able to bring the gospel even to those difficult places. However it is, you need to respond. We are called to respond to God, the God who says, I will act, the God who has acted, and the God who will act again. Father, in this moment, I just pray for hearts of surrender around this room, that there wouldn't be anything that we hold back from you. God, that your word would be preeminent in our thinking, in our living, and God, that we would surrender in a fresh way today. I'm gonna invite for everyone to stand. We're gonna have a song of response, but I invite you, maybe even at your seat, just make this a time of surrender again, where you give your life back to Jesus. Maybe that specific area where he has not been Lord, please give that area to him until everything in your life is given fully to Jesus. I'm here to pray with you, but let's sing in response to God's word.